From NPR, this is Justice Talking. I'm Marco Adler. As Justice Talking comes to an end, we wanted to bring you some of our favorite moments. You can sit right across from me and think the most horrendous things you want about me, and I don't care. But do not harass me. Do not harass my people. Do not discriminate against my people. And again, the, the, the government has this fundamental belief that you can't legalize because somehow then uh, it'll get used like it's not getting used today. And it is. I'm not running for president right now, not just because I lost in Iowa, but because I made the calculation that if I did, I would take away votes that otherwise would go to John Kerry, and the result was going to be the re-election of George Bush. That is a national emergency, and we cannot have it. After the news, fat discrimination, the drug war, third-party politics, and more of Justice Talking on the Road. Stay with us. This is Justice Talking from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center. I'm Margo Adler. After almost nine years of broadcasting, Justice Talking is going off the air. In over 300 programs, we examined legal, constitutional, and public policy stories that affected our lives. We traveled all around the country bringing civil debate to your towns, exploring important issues like the environment, elections, immigration, military tribunals, and the war on drugs. We had some extraordinary debates and articulate guests, but often it was the members of our audience who made the greatest impression. So all of us at Justice Talking, the producers, myself, the whole staff, thought we would take the opportunity to reflect on what has been an amazing adventure and use our last two shows to bring you some of our most memorable moments. Justice Talking began as a one-on-one, hour-long debate taped in front of an audience at Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia. From Independence Mall in Philadelphia, this is NPR's Justice Talking. Carpenters Hall hosted the first Continental Congress back in 1774. Ben Franklin had an office on the second floor, which today is a library filled with musty furniture and old books. The main hall was like an echo chamber. From a broadcast point of view, it was not the best location to tape a show. But everyone, including our guests, waxed poetic when they stood and spoke from this historic building. Thank you for having me. Well, it's an honor and a privilege to be here in a place that freedom was born, underneath Ben Franklin's office. One cannot come to Philadelphia without gazing back 200 years in awe and wonder at the wisdom of the framers of the Constitution. We taped our show on Monday evenings, and we were joined by a diverse audience, which included a few regulars, including a homeless woman, a man who came prepared with more questions for our guests than we had, and a mom who brought her two homeschooled sons. Um, My name is Matt Everett, and I'm 11. I was wondering... um, Uh, My name is Mike, and I'm 13. I was wondering, uh, do uniforms... All kinds of lawyers, professors, and advocates trooped into Carpenter's Hall. One of my favorites was Columbia Law School professor Eben Moglen, who, along with accomplished copyright lawyer Stephen Metalitz, debated the merits of the ill-fated music distribution website Napster. In the original Justice Talking Shows, we asked all of our guests to prepare an opening statement. Here's a bit from Eben Moglen's opening thoughts recorded almost eight years ago. Thank you, Margo. It's a pleasure to be here. The uh, uh, thing that we usually call the Internet is actually the name of a social condition. In the Internet society, every human being is directly and immediately connected to every other person or group of people. In such a society, a phenomenon occurs which is known by the rather ugly and awkward name of disintermediation, which means that middlemen don't have any purpose anymore. What we are meeting on this afternoon is one small piece of the death of the system of middlemen who control our culture. The recording industry, a particularly obnoxious bunch of middlemen, who have been stealing musicians and audiences blind for decades, no longer have any purpose in the distribution of music in our society. But they have decades of ill-gotten gains, and in an epoch of particularly corrupt politics in America, they have enormous legal leverage at their disposal. 
consisting primarily of devices intended for the protection of musicians and other creators, now largely perverted in the direction of the maintenance of commercial monopolies once said to be necessary to encourage creation, now simply responsible for the collection of unjust profits by people who create nothing. There is nothing to be afraid of, nothing requiring re-education of children, nothing requiring a vast ethical tussle between ourselves and our consciences, nothing that determines that either we shall hurt musicians or they will hurt us. On the contrary, there is only a forthcoming moment of liberation when we find ourselves listening to the music we make for one another, minus the people who currently take 98% of what lies on the table. Thank you. Eben proved to be one of the more interesting characters at our Carpenter's Hall tapings. A very sensitive issue stirred the passions of our audience and our staff, for reasons we won't go into here. In February 2001, we taped a show that asked if a law should be passed which would put the obese in a protected category, much like race and gender. Our two guests completely disagreed. Lynn McAfee, an obesity activist, and labor lawyer Michael Ossip. I'm curious, Lynn, as to whether your group or other groups have attempted to try to determine just how many people, uh, whether by percentages or by absolute numbers, would actually be protected by a law that prohibited discrimination on the basis of appearance. I noted the NAFA newsletter, quote, we don't expect every fat person in America to support NAFA's work, only the 40 million who are discriminated against. And I'm wondering if that 40 million is a number that you think would be able to bring claims under this law. I think that there are two issues, and one is 40 million people are, in fact, I think the number is more than that, 55% of the population now is considered overweight or obese. I think that the number of people who would fit under the ADA statute, so one can only guess, but the estimates that that I've seen are about 1% of the population is going to fit under the ADA. But how many, what percent would fit under a general statute that prohibited discrimination on the basis of weight or size? Why don't you draw one up for me and then we'll figure that out? (laughs) Because right now we don't have that. Well, let me tell you what I'm concerned about happening, and and I just read this in People magazine of all sources, but I assume it's it's accurate. The first lawsuit that has been brought under the San Francisco ordinance that we heard about at the top of the show has been filed on behalf of a nine-year-old girl who is four feet, one inches tall, and weighs 64 pounds and claims to have been kept out of a ballet school because of a perception that she was too big. Now, I'm not sure that the advocates for the uh, overweight who went and and tried to get this law passed and were ultimately successful had in mind that a nine-year-old girl would be the poster child for the anti-fat discrimination law. When you start legislation of any kind like this, it's not going to be perfect. The point is that this is to rectify decades and, and even centuries in some cases of wrongs and that we don't have to get it right the first time. The value of getting legislation for a civil rights movement or a social change movement is really the educational process that that brings into the public eye, that that makes a statement that says, you know what, we really do mean it when we say in America we want the best person for the job. We hope there'll be no litigation. We hope there'll become a day where no one ever has to think about litigation. But we all know that that's not the result of a, of a law like this. Uh, a law like this is tested and, and the, the limits of the law are determined as a result of, of litigation. It sounds like, in, in a sense, Lynn, that what you're trying to do is to some extent legislate thought that I can envision certainly if a law like this is passed, claims of fat harassment just like there are now claims of sexual harassment and racial harassment and national origin harassment. But there's uh, a lot of fat harassment. I mean, well, you, you yeah. just have to be about 10 pounds overweight in high school to get you... fat harassment. So, so uh, does that mean that every time somebody tells a joke that, that uh, has as a punchline somebody who's overweight or, or quote, fat, uh, that that's now going to be actionable in the courts? You know, you can go home and you can think anything you want about me. You can sit there and you can sit right across from me and think the most horrendous things you want about me, and I don't care. I'm not even trying to legislate that. I could care less what you think. But do not harass me. Do not harass my people. Do not discriminate against my people. That's all I care about. That's what I want to legislate. Many people in the audience felt passionately about the rights of the overweight, including these two women. 
Hello, folks. I'm Kelly Bliss. And, Michael, I can't help but follow through with a logical train of thought. It seems to me that your comment is because there's no law against the discrimination, that's why the discrimination is okay. And I guess what I want to say is that's why many people believe there should be a law against the discrimination. For example, I stand before you right now, five foot tall and 200 pounds. I went to audition as an aerobic instructor. I went with three other women. And when we went to the audition, they took us into a room one by one. And they told each of the other three women, for the rest of your training, go and stand behind Kelly Bliss and watch what she does. Emulate her moves. Move the way she does. And you will be a very good instructor. And do you know what they told me? They told me I was too fat to be an instructor. Oh, wait. I messed this story up. This all happened when I weighed 127 pounds 15 years ago. At 127 pounds, I was discriminated against as being too fat. Well, I stand here perfectly healthy. Heart rate of a marathon runner, low cholesterol, low blood pressure, and I happen to be morbidly obese. My point is, if I walk into a place and somebody discriminates against me, I'm not disabled because of my size. I have no action to take. And I'm astounded at your implication that because there are so many fat people, implementing a law that will protect fat people will cause too many litigations. Well, heck, there were so many black people and so many women, and we still protected them. Another question? I guess it may surprise people to see what side of the coin that I fall on with this issue, and it's, it is against the legislation that you're proposing, Lynn. I think that this legislation is basically designed to quell hurt feelings. It's just not going to happen. If you put two people who are both skinny as could be next to one another, one's better looking than the other. The better looking person is going to get the job. They've done studies on that. Um, we are a culture that is a slave to aestheticism, and I just don't think that's going to change. And I'm not so sure that it should, I have to say. <laughs> Why? Why don't you think it should? I've, I've been, I know you're not part of NAFA, and you've made that clear, but um, the position of NAFA and groups of its ilk have really angered me in the past because they try, almost take the position that fat is some sort of sacrament. You know, and, and it's not. We know that it does put you at risk for health problems. You say that, you know, what a shame it is we're not love interests on TV. We're not love interests in real life either. I mean, try to I get am. a date. Well, My dance card's pretty full right now, but thanks I, for asking. I'm glad that it is. I'm very happy for you, but I think that it makes it significantly harder to, you know, find the person that you want to find. We had some lively debates at Carpenter's Hall, but eventually we decided the space was too small and the acoustics too limiting. So we moved to the University of Pennsylvania campus. Coming up, we'll hear more of our favorite shows from Philadelphia. Stay with us. Justice Talking, the public radio show about law, justice, and American life. I'm Margo Adler. Today we're taking a look back at some of our favorite Justice Talking debates. After almost three years of taping the show at the historic Carpenters Hall, we moved the show to the University of Pennsylvania campus. The Wistar Institute provided better sound and better space, and it was right behind our office. Being on campus meant losing some of our regular audience members, but we were energized by students who came and participated in our programs. One of the first shows taped on campus was in March of 2002 and dealt with digital copyright. A computer algorithm called DCSS was being used to make illegal copies of DVDs, which proved infuriating to the movie industry. Even publishing the code was being challenged legally. Media scholar Siva Vaidyanathan was joined by the General Counsel for the Motion Picture Association of America, Fritz Attaway. I'd like to ask you both a series of short questions. Give me a yes or no answer or a single sentence or so. Shouldn't copyrights for creative works be treated like drug patents limited to a short time to encourage scientific advancement that benefits society as a whole? Fritz. No. Siva. 
Yes. <laughs> Let's take the opposite idea. Should the copyright term be lengthened, as some have proposed, so that works aren't released into the public domain for another 75 years? Siva. Definitely not. We should actually go back quite a bit so we enrich the public domain and encourage uh, cultural distribution, cultural borrowing, because after all, it takes a library to write a book, and it takes a huge well of expressions to create a musical tradition. This is the American way, and I think we should uh, encourage it uh, by enriching the public domain rather than choking it off. Not one sentence, but Fritz. Yes, because copyright creates the economic incentive to make works available, and works that are under copyright are generally more widely available than works that have fallen into the public domain. Dead people can't use an incentive. I didn't say the copyright owner. I said an economic incentive to, to distribute. It does not necessarily uh, the, the original creator. Well, let's go on. I would like to play a song for you. Can you name this tune in three bits or less? This function is void. It takes two arts. The first is SEC, a pointer to a vector of 20, 48 unsigned bytes that are in the encrypted... Joseph Wecker singing the DCSS code. <laughs> MP- <laughs> MP3COM pulled this recording off its server for fear of retribution from the MPAA, your group, Fritz. So we've played just a little bit of it on Justice Talking. Are you going to sue us? <laughs> Fritz. Well, I can't say for sure. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll turn it over to our lawyers and uh, they'll be in touch with you in the morning. Siva, could he win? Uh, probably not. You only played a portion of it, so it's not operational. But he sure could intimidate you, just like the industries are intimidating artists, writers, computer scientists, academics all over the world right now. Fritz, would you like to hear more? <laughs> it wouldn't mean anything to me. And much to our surprise, the DCSS song made sense to a large part of our audience. The room was filled to capacity with young people interested in digital copyright and hacking. A few people even came dressed in support of the hacking software. I've noticed that there's at least somebody in this audience who's wearing a DCSS T-shirt here. Uh, uh, you want to model this around? Oh, three people sitting in the audience. <laughs> Why don't you describe what you're, you're wearing? Um, I'm going to come up to you at this moment. Uh, yeah, describe this. Okay, uh, the front of the shirt just has got uh, DCS on it, um, and then the back of the shirt actually has the full source code. I see, I see, I see. How many of you in the audience, before I take some more questions, how many of you have, quote, illegally, unquote, downloaded um, DVDs from various sites? Show of hands, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people. Okay. Fritz, are you taking names? No. Uh, <laughs> well, Fr- Fritz, Fritz's uh, office does this as well. Oh, I... <laughs> And how many of you actually have used DCSS for some reason? One, two, three, four, Audiences five, at the Wistar oh, Institute continued to surprise us. The next month, Justice Talking took up an issue rarely heard on public radio, legalizing prostitution. Two dynamic women debated this issue. Christine Stark, who worked with several organizations to help women leave the prostitution industry, and Carol Lee, who, as a prostitute for 20 years, worked to educate sex workers on health issues. Needless to say, both women were passionate and frank about their point of view, but our biggest surprise came when we took the microphone out to the audience for comments. What we didn't know was that a number of sex workers came to the taping and were ready to talk. This is really, really hard. (laughs) Um, My name is Kelly, and I'm not going to say where I'm from. Um, I'm an ex-prostitute. I was feeling pretty alone a couple years ago when I reached out to get some help. And Chris, she's there for me. I mean, she's a friend of mine, and she's been trying to help me. She's still trying to help me. But uh, I wanted to speak to the fact that uh, Carol's talking about... um, Hey, Carol. (laughs) Carol's talking about... um, the fact that not all women who are prostitutes are necessarily rape victims, and in that, in a sense, some women do choose it. And Carol, you're making a good point. I hear that, but 
I, I am one of those women who chose it, but I really didn't want to choose it. Do you know what I mean? I really wanted somebody to help me. I really wanted somebody to give me some options. I really wanted somebody to give a damn about me. I felt like I was nothing. I had no self-worth. And if somebody tried to ask me about my self-worth, I'd say, I'm fine. I love what I'm doing. This is great. I have plenty of self-worth because I, I want to be tough. You can't hurt me. You can't get in. And what I really needed, Carol, was help. Don't get me wrong. You do a lot of good work. I mean, when I was out there, knowing there are women like you out there who gave a damn, the men, the men didn't give a damn about me, okay? They didn't give a damn. And knowing that there are women like you out there who gave a damn about my life meant a lot because I think you do care about the prostitutes. I really do. Um, and you do a lot of good work to help them. My issue with you, Carol, is a lot of the women who are prostitutes are choosing it, but they're really not choosing it. If they really could get some help and do something else, they would. It comes from low self-esteem. Do you want to well, can you I, speak to that? Yes, thank you so much. Um, I've done outreach on the streets. I work with different women who want to get out of prostitution and definitely try to help them get out. I mean, I'm in no position to actually go, go to prostitutes and say, oh, no, you should like your job and we should just fight for our rights. When I work with people and I do outreach, I definitely try to see where the woman stands and try, or, or where the man stands and try to help them towards what they really need. So, you know, in, ter in terms of, of working individually, I think that's really important. And I, I don't want people to mistake my position as being one of, of just basically saying, well, you're doing it, it's a great job, and you should like it. No, no, that's not, not it at all. The next year, Justice Talking moved again, this time to the National Constitution Center in the historic part of Philadelphia. We began a new tradition. At the end of the Supreme Court term in July, we invited our guests to take a look back at the most important cases decided that year. Our first wrap-up was with Bob Barr and John Podesta. You might remember Congressman Barr most for his role in the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. He has since left the Republican Party and is now the Libertarian presidential candidate. John Podesta was Clinton's chief of staff. As you might expect, the show centered on the liberals versus the conservatives on the Supreme Court. It was a year of landmark cases, including a Michigan case on affirmative action in education and a case in Texas on the legality of homosexual sodomy. Um, let's move on to another court decision, Lawrence versus Texas. Uh, there the court struck down a Texas law that criminalized homosexual sodomy. John, Justice Scalia, in a vitriolic dissent in the sodomy case, accuses the court of taking sides in the culture wars and buying into the homosexual rights agenda. Is Justice Scalia correct? And if so, shouldn't an issue as divisive as this be fought out in the political arena and not the courts? First of all, I don't think it is the divisive issue. I think that a vast majority, a supermajority uh, of American people think that the police have no business knocking your door down and going into your bedroom where there are two consenting adults doing whatever they're doing. So I think that if the first volley was fired uh, in the culture war, it was, it was fired uh, by Justice Scalia, not by the majority opinion that Justice Kennedy wrote. But does this belong in the courts? Of course it belongs in the courts. I think it, it, it's a fundamental interpretation of what liberty means uh, in this country, that the right to be left alone, the right to do two consenting adults want to do with their relationship in their own bedroom, that's a fundamental uh, liberty interest that, that American citizens have. And I applaud Justice Kennedy for recognizing that that's protected by our Constitution. And as a privacy advocate, Bob? Well, I, th I thought it was a very sound decision from the standpoint of recognizing the privacy interests that consenting adults do have. Uh, unlike uh, perhaps a lot of uh, my conservative colleagues, I do think that, uh, that there is a right to privacy that's inherent in the Constitution. I don't think that it was, should have been the basis for Roe v. Wade, uh, but I do think that there is a fundamental privacy uh, right in the Constitution that underlies many of the provisions of the Bill of Rights. Uh, the Fourth Amendment protects your home. That's a privacy interest. Uh, the Second Amendment, uh, the Sixth Amendment, and so forth. So I thought it was a very sound decision based on, uh, on privacy. John, some conservatives immediately took to the airwaves after the sodomy decision and said if the Supreme Court could change its mind on sodomy, in other words, overturn Bowers v. Hardwick, that it could change its mind on Roe v. Wade. Is there any validity to that argument? Well, if you read Justice Scalia's 
dissent in in that case. It was uh, three quarters of it was about setting up the argument that they ought to reverse Roe versus Wade. Uh, I, it's a, a couple of things I think are important to note. One is that Justice Kennedy uh, in the 92 case did sign on to the proposition that Roe v. Wade was the law of the land, that it should be respected with stare decisis. He was the fourth vote, so he's kind of the swing in the current court. Uh, but the other thing I think it's worth noting is that, of course, President Bush was asked uh, his philosophy about uh, appointing Supreme Court justices in the last election, and he said that his two models uh, for appointment of the Supreme Court, the people he would like to see more of on the Supreme Court, were Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. Of course, they both dissented in both this Lawrence case, and they're very strong opponents of, of Roe versus Wade. So I think that if if President Bush does have the opportunity, didn't get it this summer, maybe he'll get it next summer, and if he's reelected, he might have a substantial opportunity to remake the court, then I think you could see the court move radically to the right in the direction of, of Justice Scalia and no, I, Justice Thomas' no, theory. I would disagree with that, and, and I think uh, as I would hope pre- President, President, President Bush took, <laughs> took a very measured tone in responding to these court decisions. He was really questioned uh, pretty, pretty directly about it, uh, and uh, he took, I think, a very, a very measured response, saying, no, we're not going to jump into uh, abortion from this decision. Uh, I'm not going to rush out and, you know, beat my chest and rant and rail about these things. And I think what, what you were seeing was a president uh, who, yes, is conservative, and when he talks about uh, Justice uh, Thomas or Scalia, I don't think he's talking in terms of specific decisions, but a general philosophy. Uh, and he may disagree with them from time to time on, on certain cases, but uh, I, don't, I don't see, even, even if he does have, and we don't know, the opportunity to uh, nominate well, we, uh, additional uh, justices, I, I, th- I think you'll see uh, conservative, but, uh, but very reasoned conservatives appointed. After an in-depth and serious discussion, we decided to lighten things up with a set of Supreme Court trivia questions for our guests. The winner was to receive a justice-talking pocket constitution, and in retrospect, I'm not sure we determined a winner. What is the average age of the Supreme Court justices taken together? John? 67. Bob? I'd say it's probably closer to 69. Well, guess what? Bob gets it. It's 68.7 to be exact. (laughs) 69 for all extents and purposes. This is great. This is great. Which two justices were classmates at Stanford Law School, Bob? Well, Rehnquist, uh, I believe, of course, as a a law professor, uh, John probably knows. You need a lifeline? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, is it a man or a woman? <laughs> no, I know, I know the answer no to this. Okay, John? O'Connor and, and Rehnquist. Ding, 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 yes. Yeah. Rehnquist and O'Connor. Which justice was an only child and now has nine children, Bob? Good Lord. <laughs> this is easy. This is easy? Yeah. Why, is this, why is this easy? Think, think Catholic, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> John, you want to take it? Justice Scalia. Right. (laughs) That's correct. How many of the Supreme Court justices attended Harvard at some point during their academic careers? We're looking for a number. John. Three. What was your first one? Oh, three. Bob? I'd say it's probably higher than that. I'd probably say five or six. It's six. It goes to Bob. It's Ginsburg, Souter, Breyer, Scalia, Rehnquist, and Kennedy. Which justice is a 63-year-old bachelor with no children, John? David Souter. Would you agree? I would agree. Okay. You're both right. Which justice said good manners will open doors that the best education cannot? Bob. O'Connor. John? Mm. It wasn't Justice Amy Vanderbilt. (laughs) (laughs) Nor Emily Justice Kennedy. I'll just take a wing. It's Justice Clarence Thomas. Which justice was nicknamed the Blister King at summer camp for his lack of athletic ability? John. (laughs) That is, that's too tough. I pass. (laughs) Bob? Thomas? Breyer. That was tough. We admit that. 
Which justice earned the Bronze Star while serving in the Navy during World War II? John. Justice Stevens. Bob? Stevens. You got it, both. Which justice grew up on the Lazy Bee cattle ranch with no <laughs> electricity easy. or running water? Bob. O'Connor. You got it. Which two justices voted together more often this term than any other two? Bob. Thomas and Scalia. I'd say that's right. You are both right. And now the one question which has nothing to do with trivia. If you had the power to make an amendment to the Constitution, what would it be, John? I actually think that having a constitutional right, a a, a written right to privacy in the Constitution would be a good thing. Bob? If I were going to come up with one, I'd I'd probably come up with one similar to to what John mentioned. Uh, Even though I do believe that there is a right to privacy that is subsumed in the Constitution, uh, it might not be a bad idea to make it explicit. As a resident of the last colony, I think providing full voting rights to to district residents would be a good thing. And D.C. voting rights is yet another topic we tackled here on Justice Talking. You can hear it on our website, justicetalking.org. Coming up, Justice Talking goes on the road. We take a look back at some of our trips across the country. Stay with us. Justice Talking is produced by the Annenberg Public Policy Center, a think tank at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The program is made possible with support from the Annenberg Foundation. The foundation works to advance public well-being through improved communication. Additional support comes from NPR member stations and West Legal Ed Center, where lawyers can listen to Justice Talking for MCLE credit online at westlegaledcenter.com. And from Oxford University Press, publisher of the United States Constitution, What It Says, What It Means, A Hip Pocket Guide. The Hip Pocket Constitution is available at justicetalking.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. While Justice Talking is going off the air, it isn't disappearing. You can listen to the entire archive of more than 300 shows on topics as diverse as pornography, race, and education, the death penalty, and pets and the law. You can listen to shows you've missed or ones you want to hear again. Just go to our website, justicetalking.org, where you'll also find information about our guests, the law, and links to useful resources. This is Justice Talking, the public radio show about law, justice, and American life. I'm Margot Adler. Today we're taking a look back at some of our favorite Justice Talking moments. Most of our shows were taped in Philadelphia, but we occasionally took the show on the road. The main reason, to have an audience that was passionately involved with the legal or policy ideas we were debating. So in collaboration with KANW, we went to Albuquerque on September 10, 2001, to debate Native American sovereignty and America's war on drugs. The drug war show brought lots of media attention, and we even had protesters outside the venue in support of drug legalization. Beyond those guiding principles established by the law, we should have an ongoing debate as to how we can do better in our country on drug policy. I think that what we need to do is legalize marijuana. I think we need to adopt harm reduction strategies for all these other drugs. 
drug abuse needs to be viewed as a medical problem. We were joined by Gary Johnson, then governor of New Mexico, and Asa Hutchinson, the head of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. Mr. Hutchinson, your former colleague in the House, Representative Barney Frank of Massachusetts, said recently in Rolling Stone, getting high on marijuana means you're rebellious, while getting drunk on beer means you're a good old boy. But ask any cop whether he'd rather go into a house full of people high on marijuana or one full of people drunk on beer, and they'll tell you they'd much rather deal with people on marijuana. Why shouldn't our laws treat marijuana the same as alcohol? Well, I think I would answer that with the same question that a teenager in New Mexico asked to Governor Johnson after he came out with his legalization plan and said, how are you going to discourage drug use in the high schools whenever you make these kind of statements? The governor has indicated it is a handicap. He has made the decision in his life. He is going to distance himself from both alcohol and marijuana. Should we make that more difficult for teenagers and people in our society to make the same judgment? I, I, I have to go from personal experience, and marijuana is not like alcohol. It's far more benign than alcohol. Uh, and I speak uh, from personal experience on this. And again, the, the, the government has this fundamental belief that you can't legalize because somehow then uh, it'll get used. Like it's not getting used today. And it is. Governor it's getting Johnson, used. Have you been able to persuade the New Mexico legislature to uh, legalize marijuana? I am trying. Have you been able to do it thus far? Well, and so I think in, that. Interest, I, interestingly, I think that the society uh, uh, here a, in New Mexico a, uh, has not bought into the idea that this is so inadequate and no, harmful. No, wait. I, I want to give all the credit in the world to Asa Hutchinson uh, right, right now. Thank you for being here. This is, this is a huge, uh, huge change in federal policy to have Asa show up here and talk about this subject. So I, I think he deserves all the credit in the world here for being here. But we did, we did in New Mexico uh, assemble judges. We ascended assembled those in the medical field, law enforcement, that came up uh, with these actual uh, proposals and submitted them to the legislature. And I would just point out that I do think the needle is moving nationwide. I noticed in a poll a couple of weeks ago, USA Today poll, uh, that the most people ever uh, supported the legalization of marijuana since they started doing polling. So uh, obviously this is, and that was 35%, so obviously this is a situation that is moving. Governor Johnson and Asa Hutchinson went head-to-head -head that night, answering audience questions about drug education, legalizing marijuana, and the cost of the war on drugs. Immediately following this taping, we ushered in a new audience and new guests and did the whole thing again, but this time on the important issue of Native American sovereignty. It was a long yet successful day, and we were more than ready to head back to the East Coast the next morning. But the next morning was September 11th and Asa Hutchinson was the only one of us to get back home that day. Our staff spent three days, like most of America, in shock, watching television, on the phone with loved ones, waiting for planes to take off. For me, the one New Yorker on the staff, 9-11 would deeply change my life. Three days later, I got back to my regular job as a reporter for NPR. I did very little else but cover the human drama for the next six months. One of the best aspects of taking Justice Talking on the road was having an audience filled with people passionate about the issue at hand, whether it was a show on Native American sovereignty in New Mexico, an election show in Florida, or a debate about Internet wine sales in Northern California. And there was no better place for a debate on gun ownership than in Texas. It's your turn to join the discussion, so I'm coming out into the audience of Texas Public Radio listeners who've joined us here at the Witte Museum. We have about, oh, 150, 200 people here. How many people in this audience own a gun? I would say we're talking at definitely more than half, somewhere between a half and three quarters. Um, I can tell you that would probably not be the number of hands raised in our audience in Philadelphia. Um, 
Um, let's, uh, yes, how many of you uh, are carrying those guns? <laughs> we suddenly, we suddenly, uh, no one's telling us. That's, uh, right, it's none of our business. It's none of our business, right. Okay, let's take uh, the first Needless question. to say, it was a feisty conversation. Perhaps the most inspired debate we ever had, the most popular, and the one that got the most press, was our debate on the relevance of third parties to American democracy. In July of 2004, Justice Talking came to the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. With the presidential election only three months away, we brought in one-time contender Howard Dean, now, of course, the head of the Democratic Party, to take on third-party candidate Ralph Nader. Remember that many Democrats blamed Nader for losing the 2000 election for Al Gore. They claimed his third-party candidacy took away precious votes that could have tilted the election in Gore's favor. Governor Dean, is Mr. Nader responsible for the election of President George Bush, and will he be a factor this time around? Uh, I think that what's gone is gone, what's done is done. I didn't begrudge Ralph Nader running in 2004, I mean 2000, because he had a role to play and Nobody knew the election was going to be this close, and nobody knew how dreadful George Bush was going to be as a president. But, Ralph, I think you're being disingenuous about your candidacy this year, and let me tell you why. You have 46% of all your signatures on the, to get you on the Arizona ballot turned out to be Republican supporters. You accepted the support of a right-wing fanatic Republican group that's anti-gay in order to help you get on the ballot in Oregon. You have accepted... One out of every every $10,000 checks that you've accepted have been from people who've already given money to Bush Cheney. Your own organizer said in Virginia that you go to tractor pulls to try to get the signatures because they think they're doing Bush a favor. This is not going to help the progressive cause in America. And the thing that upsets me so much about this is you have the right to run. You can get in bed with whoever you want to. But don't call the Democratic Party full of corporate interests. They have their problems. We all have ours. None of us are pure. And this campaign of yours is far from pure. If you are willing to accept the help of a right-wing anti-gay group to get you on the ballot, you need to repudiate those people. And as your own running mate says, send back those Republican checks. You're really being very inaccurate, apart from being unfair. We have not accepted the support of any anti-gay groups. We have not accepted as fulsomely the support of Republican dollars the way the Democrats have. The Democrat fat cats, Republican fat cats pour millions into each other's parties to hedge the bets. Uh, and and I, I think the issue here is the corporate government. Let's not be distracted by the two parties that are simply proxies. We don't want to settle for the lesser of two evils in our country. We don't want to have another special interest clone in Washington. We don't want to have another Washington insider who's who strike, shifts back and forth with every poll, and we don't want to have an insensitivity for the plight of workers, American workers in this country, who have lost their manufacturing jobs. All those quotes come from Howard Dean the first against John Kerry in the primary campaign. What you're hearing now is Howard Dean the second in a desperate attempt to smear our campaign, which is struggling to get on the ballot against the massive anti-civil liberties obstruction of the Democratic Party, which is the one that's really interfering with our campaign, not the press releases by Democrat Republicans who haven't produced any results. That is also more disingenuous nonsense. The truth is that you told the people of this country that you were going to use volunteer help to get on the ballot in Arizona. You hired out that help, and that's why they made so many mistakes. That Public Citizen, which you founded, earlier said this year that John Kerry ranks at the top of senators in standing up against political action committee money, which he has never accepted in his career, and lobbyist money. Not only has Kerry refused historically to take PAC money, but his record shows that he's been a leader for more than a decade in full reform of campaign financing, advocating for clean public money, not only for presidential, but also congressional campaigns. My purpose, st- my purpose yeah. here is not to smear Ralph Nader. You oh, have an no, extraordinary... Okay, okay, guys. <laughs> you have... Okay, guys, let's bring some other people into this discussion. Well, let me just You're finish li- what I'm going to say because it's important. You have an extraordinary career in standing up for the American people. You have saved lives with your extraordinary work with automobile safety. You are responsible for much of the extraordinary environmental work that has been done in this country in the last 40 years. I ask you not to turn your back on your own legacy. In an attempt to get both Ralph Nader and Howard Dean off of their talking points, we decided to throw them a curveball. So are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, one sentence. Howard Dean, who is your favorite president? Two, George Washington and Harry Truman, for different reasons, obviously. 
And Ralph Nader, yours. Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson. Governor Dean, would you take a cabinet position in a Democratic administration if it was offered to you? Oh, you know, health and human services, Surgeon General, you know. I, I haven't made any deals like that, but if Ralph comes on board, maybe we can both get cabinet positions. Well, that was my next question. Um, Senator, if Senator John Kerry wins and asks you, uh, Mr. Nader, to be head of the Environmental Protection Agency, would you take the job? You might get a pension. No, I won't. <laughs> no. Yeah, are you supposed to be impartial? <laughs> the answer is no, because I want to be, after the election, uh, what, Howard, uh, what Howard Dean told me he wanted to be during the election when he lost the primaries, is to be a hair shirt for the Democrats, a real hair shirt not a linen handkerchief. If, if, if you could give Howard Dean, Mr. Nader, if you could give Howard Dean one piece of political advice, what would it be? I would tell him to explain to the American people why Howard Dean, the first comments on John Kerry, which were unbelievably searing, makes me look modest by comparison, why they are no longer part of Howard Dean II's political repertoire. When you're running against somebody for office... The fact is that it's tough and you focus on the differences. When you're running as a team, you've got to look at the fact that the differences between any of the nine of us that ran for the presidency are so, the differences between any of us are so small compared to the difference between us and George Bush that we are on the same team. We need to focus on one thing in this election, sending George Bush back to Crawford, Texas, and then we'll have a chance at instigating some of the reforms that we're both talking about. Governor here. Dean, what one suggestion would you give Ralph Nader? Lighten up. <laughs> Howard. Well, that's better than what I thought he was going to say. <laughs> one of our last tapings on the road was done in collaboration with the Cape and Islands public radio stations in Massachusetts, where a fierce battle was raging over setting up a wind farm in the Cape Cod Sound. Our audience came loaded with questions for our two guests, John Pesacantando from Greenpeace, who believed the wind farm was a good investment for the environment, and Jerry Taylor from the Cato Institute, who believed that wind farms were generally a waste of time and money. Let's go back into the audience where we have another question here on Justice Talking. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Chuck Kleekamp. I live in Sandwich here on Cape Cod. How can you say wind, which fuel cost is zero, can't compete with oil and natural gas, which set the clearing price 80% of the time in New England. Jerry, I think that's for you. Well, I can't speak for New England nationally. Only about 2% of our electricity comes from oil, and only about 1% of all oil is dedicated to electricity generation in the United States. So uh, some regions are going to be higher and some regions are going to be lower, but nationally, that's the picture. So, Jerry, who do you think benefits financially from wind power? People. Shareholders, <clears throat> consumers. Who, who, who? Well, people who, make, uh, people who make wind power for a living and people who invest in wind power. It's a tax shelter. So anybody who's got uh, tax liabilities they can dump into a wind facility is going to do pretty good. If you're looking at the wind power companies themselves, it's not Bobby and Sue Cream Cheese, who's a member of Greenpeace somewhere locally. It's GE. You know where GE got its turbines? Enron. Mitsubishi's a big manufacturer. BP's a big investor. So, I mean, wind is John, a, John how do you answer America. that? Well, you know, the, the people of the state speak when they say we want a renewable portfolio standard in our states. We want m more renewable energy in our states. That is public policy. That's democracy working, mandating that a certain amount, a certain percentage of the energy in that state be from renewable sources. That's a beautiful thing. Jerry harkens back to a, a time that never existed when there's some kind of there's, – there, there's no subsidies and corporations are just out there sort of playing in the field every day for the lowest cost and maximizing this and maximizing that. That's a very cold world and it's an extremely polluted world. We need regulation. I want the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. I want the Kyoto Protocol to regulate and drive down the amount of carbon in the air. The wind farm has to pass environmental muster. It's important for us to look at that. Greenpeace doesn't support wind farms everywhere, anywhere. They have to pass muster. And when they do, we think they're an extremely important part of the puzzle to solve this wicked storm coming on us called global warming. Jerry? Jerry? 
This is actually very delicious for me. <laughs> because here we have an issue where a local community does not want industrial development. And they're worried that on public lands, industry may destroy a sensitive ecosystem. It may destroy the aesthetic beauty of an area, all for profit and for an energy corporation. And we have Greenpeace complaining about the NIMBYs and about the people going through the back door to shut down investment, defending the, the uh, investment, denigrating the fact that it's aesthetically uh, unattractive, denigrating the fact that it's a marine sanctuary. There's anything worth worrying about environmentally here. And here you've got the libertarian who's actually saying, look, the individuals in that community probably should have a say about how the public lands around them are being used. The fight over the proposed wind farm has not yet been resolved. You can hear our entire program on the Cape Wind Project, as well as other shows featured on today's broadcast, on our website, justicetalking.org. You can also find out more about why Justice Talking is going off the air and post your comments. Thanks for listening. I'm Margo Adler. Justice Talking is produced by Ingrid Lakey, Kara McGurk, and Annie jurgens Bear. Gary Gaiman is our webmaster. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music, Engineering by Audio Post Philadelphia. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania or National Public Radio. This is NPR's Justice Talking. Support for NPR comes from the Annenberg Foundation, advancing public well-being through improved communication, on the web at annenbergfoundation.org. From Kaufman, the foundation of entrepreneurship, celebrating entrepreneurs who start businesses and change the world, on the web at kaufman.org. And from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, making grants to solve social and environmental problems at home and around the world, on the web at hewlett.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.